Hello and welcome to this week's episode of FireDev, a fireside chat with people in the industry. Today, my guest is Russ Olson. Russ, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How's the weather where you are? It is absolutely gorgeous here. I live just outside of Washington, D.C. in the United States, and it is a beautiful fall day. No, that's good. Like, how's the weather year round, or is it? Or does it change throughout the year, like UK? Uh, oh, it it's just so unfair because uh, the DC summers are pretty awful. It is really hot and humid here in the summertime, and then it gets quite cold in the winter. So that just seems completely unfair. Uh, but it's the you know, there's the old expression that if you don't like the weather, wait a while. Uh, that's kind of the DC weather. Uh, <laughs> I wish that was the same in the UK. It's like, if you don't like it, don't worry. You know, you're going to wish, you know, it was the way it was 10 minutes ago. It's probably going to get worse. Like, all summer, our weather has been pretty bad. Like, everyone in the UK just considers this not to have been a summer. It's like, it's been that bad. And it's funny because in, I mean, we're in October now, in September, the mid to late September, we actually had a few mid 20 degree, you know, decent days. And it's like, I thought summer was over, but then it's come back. And like today's day is actually pretty decent. I haven't checked the weather, but I was just just out, you know, with shorts and a t-shirt as to quickly pop out. And I didn't really feel uncomfortable. Uh, you know, just to quickly pop mm-hmm. out with shorts and a t-shirt. So uh, it's probably, I say, low 20s. Uh, and I've heard it's meant to get as high as 24 the next week or so as well. So it's just like we wanted this weather, you know, in the actual summer, not in, you know, fall. Right, right. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, Russell. You know, what are you working on right now and, you know, your background? Sure. Well, let me start uh, with the past because there, I have an awful lot of it. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I started programming professionally in the very early 1980s. Um, and um, I actually, I was doing mechanical engineering and it turned out uh, that I had started doing mechanical engineering right around the time where the idea of using computers in everyday engineering was just seeping into the industry. So as sort of the young person right out of university who was interested in computers, that was kind of, I got all of that work because most of my colleagues had no idea. Um, So, you know, very different world. Um, Since then, you know, I worked, uh, whole series of things. I did CAD CAM and GIS systems for a long time. I did enterprise integration and I've kind of bounced back and forth between being a uh, working programmer and a manager. So sometimes I'm a manager and sometimes I work for a living. Um, and uh, <laughs> well, that pretty just, funny, but I know what you mean. <laughs> um, just recently, uh, I am. I have departed from NewBank, which is a very large e-bank in Brazil. Um, very, very uh, prominent uh, uh, institution in Brazil. People love NewBank in Brazil, and NewBank has spread out to Mexico and Colombia. Um, uh, but as I say, I've sort of uh, just sort of ended my my time with Newbank. Um, to go back to um, one of the things that I really love doing, which is I've written a few computer books. 
Um, I wrote a couple of books on Ruby and I wrote a book on the programming language closure. And I think I'm going to spend at least the next six months or so uh, doing some writing and just kind of unwinding from the intensity of working for a startup that had just gone public. Uh, so, so that's me. I don't know. I suppose I could talk about myself all day, but you know. Uh, I mean, that's what you'll be doing, but I'll ask you know, <laughs> a big question. So what was, you know, coding like in the 80s, like 40 years ago? So oh, God. how, did, you know, what's changed and what surprisingly stayed the same? So, well, so physically, uh, kind of the actual act of programming uh, back then was just wildly different. Um, uh, so... Um, my early days of programming, I sort of used what even then was an outmoded sort of obsolete technology, which is punch cards, where you were <laughs> sitting at this machine and writing your program by typing into this machine. And instead of like going to the computer or something like that, it's actually punching holes in a physical card sort of uh I don't know, uh, maybe 15 centimeters by 10 centimeters, something like that. I'm not really, my metric uh, escapes me. And anyway, you would end up with this huge stack of cards that you would give to the people who were allowed to touch the computer and uh, they would run your program and you would get this huge pile of paper back, which probably said, you know, there's a syntax error on card number 44. And then you'd start all over again. Uh, you'd find that card and punch it again. And so imagine, uh, you know, imagine, a pr you know, building programs where the turnaround cycle between, you know, oh, I want to compile this and seeing your error is maybe 10 minutes. Um, so you had to really want to program, uh, but that was that was sort of the early days. And pretty rapidly, we got to dumb CRT terminals, which everyone kind of looks down on now, and were just like uh, a gift from God back then compared to punch cards. Um, so all of that, you know, and the computers were slow, small, and wildly expensive. Um, even a, you know, when I started, I. I think uh, an Apple II, so an 8-bit Apple, was maybe, oh, I don't know, six $800, which probably equates to $5,000 today, something like that. So phenomenally expensive. Um, and then the mainframes that I was working on were in the hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars. Um, but Organizationally, um, it was also different too because people fundamentally did not understand how to write code. Like just like the social act, like how you behaved in writing code, looking back on it, we didn't realize it was a team sport. Like we thought we could divide up any big job and you know, if there were five people in the team, each person would go back to their office and work for months on their part of the program. And then somehow we we imagined that, you know, in the last week or something of the project, we'd all come together and put it all together and it would just work. And you can imagine how that uh, worked out. Oh, yeah. um, I, I, I can actually remember uh, sitting with another programmer who was having trouble with a bug, trying to help him fix his bug. And my boss coming by and gently telling me to get back to work, right? We just didn't understand 
how this thing was, you know, how it was supposed to, how could we, right? It was brand new. Um, so. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, obviously, you know, the sort of, you know, previously, if you was over at somebody's desk, I'm guessing, you know, before this, you know, this type of work was invented, it was probably seen as just, you know, mingling, you know, social right. interaction, and he wasn't, you know, doing work, because especially, you know, if you're working at a company where the work itself isn't that creative or problem-solving, and, you know, it's really a matter of just raw hours. <laughs> like, if you're, you know, laying bricks, for example, uh, obviously, you know, having an extra person, you know, helps, but it'll probably just help if they're just laying the other right. wall and you're doing your wall. Uh, like, them just standing there and talking to you is probably not going to be, you know, productive unless the brick's super heavy. So, yeah, so the way I I think of it, again, is like um, is like a team sport versus an individual sport, right? Like, if you're playing golf, right, you can't help the person who's at the tee or whatever, right? It, they have to do it themselves. And I think that that was sort of the image that people had is it was more like golf when, in fact, it's more like football, Um your kind of football or my kind of football doesn't matter, right? Where it's a team and we're all, we all have a job, but we're all sort of helping each other. And the team is greater than the sum of, you know, the team can get things done. It's not just eight or 11 or whatever individual people. Um, but yeah, I, I, and I think one of the other things that was different back then, which is, I, I, you know, there is some advantage to have been, having been around for as long as I have, which is that I know that back then many more, you know, projects failed at a much greater rate than they do today. Uh, and which I think is probably surprising to anyone who's ever like, you know, in the last year or two has lived through something that hasn't worked out all that well. That is a much rarer event than it was back then. I think back then people talked about, 70 80 percent of software projects just flat out failing so like i mean what was the you know reason for them was it a technical like team-based thing what you was you know discussing or was it that people didn't really know what to use the technology for and it was a bit of a wild west so i so there was i mean it's you know i think the answer to your question is yes like all of the above um, we didn't understand how to organize software projects, as I was saying. Um, fundamentally, the programmers, you know, there wasn't this depth of experience that, you know, here's an easy looking problem that, in fact, everyone in the industry knows is actually very difficult, you know, like interfacing to a third party system. People generally today know that that is probably harder than you think, no matter how hard you think it is. It's, you know, something that's intu counterintuitively difficult. We didn't know that back then. Um, we didn't realize back then how difficult it is to understand requirements. So, you know, someone, you know, 
there was a period where the idea was that someone would write a requirements document and you should never, ever have to talk to that person because it's all in the document. <laughs> and of course, we figured out that like actually talking to the person who understands the requirements, yeah, that that's a valuable, valuable thing. Um, we also just had a lot more the code doesn't work uh, kind of kind of things. And I think we've gotten a lot better at writing code that actually works because, mm. you know, we've got 40 years more experience doing it. And better tools as well. Cause, yeah, exactly. You know, like, you know, obviously, I, you know, I was born in 1991. I didn't, you know, I'd say first start coding in 2008 when I went to college at 16 years old. Um, I mean, before that, I think I did a bit of like games programming just at high school, but not at high school, you know, just when I was at high school, actually not in primary school, even at home, just because I had such an interest in computers and technology and, you know, also gaming. I remember I had this like, I don't think it was called 3D Game Maker, but it was some sort of Game Maker. Oh, yeah, I, I... I remember 3D Game Maker, sure. Yeah, yeah, do you remember it? Yeah, like you'd get it on a CD or a DVD. And I remember, you know, just messing around with that. And I think maybe something else I did, maybe a bit of coding as well. But but by the time, obviously, I started coding, you know, IDEs had, you know, IntelliSense or, you know, something along those lines, you know, formatting, you know, built-in compilers, debugging tools, you know, all, and then on top of that, you had plug. You know, you know, you got plugins now in stuff like VS Code. You've got extra debugging tools as well. Whereas I've seen people code online, especially or heard stories of how they did it back in the days, and they would just write like a whole file uh, or write a whole application, even if it wasn't too big, and then they would run it, and then they would find out if they had errors. They they wouldn't see if they had errors as they was going along. It wasn't a matter of okay, I missed the semicolon. I can see that, you know, the line's gone red. I or, you know, that line's yeah. gone red, something wrong there, quick scan, there's a semicolon. Or now you can just hover over it. There'll be a potential suggestion to fix it. Now you can even get plugins for stuff like VS Code to integrate tools like ChatGPT that do an amazing job of you can get an explanation, you can document it, you can code it, I mean, comment it, you can also, you know, you know get a solution for it, you know, all that sort of stuff. Whereas... You know, back back in the days, it's a matter of you know, you just run it, you see what you get. And uh, like, I, I even heard stories of people that didn't have access to the computer on a regular basis, so they would write the code on paper. I don't know if you yes. ever knew anyone like this, <laughs> and then they would run it when they had access, like a week later or you know, whenever. And then they would realize, okay, you've got loads of errors, got to go back and fix them. So the 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 last programming course I took as an undergraduate. We had access to the computer once a week for four hours on Wednesday night. Um, you know, th- think about that. Think about trying to learn. It was actually, uh, it was an assembly language programming. Four course, hours each or four hours for the whole class? For the whole class. How many people um, were in the class, roughly? I don't know, 15 or 20. But it wasn't, you know, it was like there were four hours where we could submit our programs to it was a mainframe at the time. So it wasn't like you were fighting over a terminal or something, but it was like, there were four hours where you could actually interact and find out, you know, if you had a syntax error on line 23 
Or if your program actually assembled, oh, well, is it doing the thing that I want it to do? Um, so, you know, the, this sort of idea of like write the whole program or write the whole file and submit it all at once, it's not crazy if there's a 10 minute turnaround, right? As opposed to I type something wrong on the line and I get the little squiggly red line and I'm like, oh, what was I thinking, right? Think about that taking 10 minutes. Yeah, and I remember, I know how it is now, you know, it's easy to complain for people from my generation uh, where, you know, the compilation takes yep. 30 seconds or, you know, some it's going a bit slow and, it, you know, we've had to do a rebuild and we're waiting 45 to 60 seconds. It's like, this is wasting so much time. And obviously you're talking about 10, maybe more minutes, you know, every time. It's not a matter of, it happened to have taken longer this time instead of the five seconds, it's taken 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I think it's also interesting, um, lots of things have changed, right? Like, we, you know, the world, I, I live in the future, right? Lots of things have changed. But as a, you know, a so I did my last major kind of professional programming project as a, uh, like an individual engineer, like two or three years ago. So not all that long ago. And then I've been managing engineers ever since. Um, the things that have stayed the same are equally interesting. So uh, what stayed the same, we're still struggling to understand requirements, right? I think maybe that will be, you know, in a thousand years, we'll have super AI, whatever, and people still struggle to understand requirements. Um but even more interesting, I think, people still have the same debugging habits frequently as we had back then. Have you ever, uh, uh, again, as a manager, I've occasionally watched people, engineers, struggle to find and fix the bugs in their program. And what we did back then is, you know, the program would do something weird um, and we would say, ah, it must be this. And we would fix this. And then, no, that wasn't it. And then we'd say, ah, it must be that. And we'd yeah, try that. And, you know, that. That, that sounds familiar. People yeah. were doing that back then. They're still doing it today. Um, yeah. And the problem uh, is sometimes it might end up kind of fixing it or looking like it's fixed it and either breaking something else or right. it's kind of, a fix for the scenario that you happen to be trying at that point, hence why you're thinking it's, you know, that particular file or component, because, you know, you're you know you're trying a particular scenario, but another scenario doesn't work because you haven't actually fixed the core right. issue. You're, you're fixing the symptoms, not like the, the, the root cause, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, that was true then. It is still all too frequently true today. I think um, e even more, uh, same kind of phenomenon, but it happens uh, almost exactly as frequently today as it did back then, is ask an engineer who is not really that experienced with this to optimize a program some way, and you will get a set of random changes sort of on faith, right? Um, and, uh, you know, as opposed to why is this program slow? Let me measure where it's actually spending its time. You get, oh, it must be this. Let me improve the uh, performance of this. I 
just experienced a scenario where a bunch of engineers were trying to speed up a particular process and they immediately focused on one part of it, which turned out to be like 1% of the time when in fact there was something else that they were not looking at, at least at first, that was like 40% of the time. So yes, you can optimize the 1% and maybe get it down to half a percent, but maybe you can optimize the 40% to, you know, you're a lot more likely to to have a return on your time by looking at the places where the the program is actually consuming the resources. But that, for whatever reason, that is just not our gut reaction. And that is true today. It was true 10 years ago. It was true in 1980. Yeah, I mean, I think that talks more to a maybe a general you know problem we have as humans in terms of we want one a quick solution we want to quickly jump to you know that solution it, it, it's like you know in terms of health you know your own body it, yeah. m- most people and and this the same thing you know with doctors and you know the medical field as well is that in a lot of time they're not you know tackling the underlying you know, issues like, you know, you know, what actually led you to having this disease or having this problem, you know, like there's so many basics that so many people don't do, you know, drink more water, do some basic, you know, exercise, nothing intense, but you know, something basic, you know, positive, you know, mental thinking, like there's so many things that people just don't do. And I feel like it's not prescribed enough. And that obviously carries over, you know, that mentality into engineering and in you know into coding specifically yeah. as well you know you, you just want to say okay we've got this problem it's not logging in for example you know why is it not logging in let's just you know you know fix it quickly you know you know there must be a solution or there must the problem must be you know line the login you know uh, you know for example I, I remember i was just on a you know doing a contract just recently and there there was an issue with a particular you know piece of information being displayed in an app that was incorrect in me so, so the scenario was you would input some information and you would go to a hub the hub would send it to the back end it would get stored and when it was retrieved on the mobile app it was displaying it incorrectly and so the you know the the bug was raised on the mobile app side so you know yeah. it seems obvious it's displaying incorrectly on the app so it must be a mobile app side and i remember that that was a bug that i actually you know took online i was looking into it and i was like okay you're sending a particular id when you're sending it up the hub received that id it was an id of 2025 and that you know corresponded to a specific device and but when we are getting it it's displaying the image for and the name of another device type and i was like okay for it, it, again it's that thing i if it's displaying that i it, it, the mapping of the device id to the you know metadata must be incorrect that wasn't the case it turned out that the id that he was getting from the back end happened to be 2000 instead of 2025 and the image and the name that he was displaying for that ID was correct based on the ID that he got. It turned mm-hmm. out there was an issue between the hub and the back end. Some sort of processing had gone on, which was a totally different team 
to you know the mobile team and again it's that thing it, because it's displayed on mobile it must be something wrong with the mobile app right. again it's right. it's very easy you know thing you know mistake to make but it was just that immediate conclusion instead of some basic you know investigation of these IDs would have determined okay the app is sending it correctly but the back end when the app is getting it is getting it incorrectly so between the sending and the retrieval, something's gone wrong, and that's not the app itself. Yeah, I think I, th- I think what you're saying there is a great example. I think people, when they're either trying to debug things or optimize things, programs, um, we have a bunch of biases, right? Like, and you, the biases frequently come out in you know in a sentence that starts with "Oh, it must be." fill in the blank, right? Yes. So in your case, it's like, it must be the mobile app. But there's general biases like, it must be the thing I'm familiar with because it's the thing I'm thinking about right now. Yeah. Or it must be the most interesting or the hardest part of the program, which is a frequent one. So how many times, at least in my career, maybe in yours as well, have have you like either yourself or other people watched other people like spin and spin and spin trying to find some problem that they are sure is some deep you know complicated interaction of the parts and it turns out to be like an off by one problem over here somewhere like completely boring just a little obscure but you spend a lot of time absolutely convinced this must be some subtle edge case in the algorithm somewhere because that's the interesting part you know oh yeah one 100% i see it all the time i know i've you know <laughs> you know done it myself i remember when i was teaching at a university for a year computer game programming and mm-hmm. i was teaching c++ for games using opengl to funny your students and the student you know sh- sh- showed me some code you know they showed me you know the output you know it just wasn't drawing correctly you know he, he was just right. cutting off and you know i was just you know he, he had shown me a bunch of stuff and, and then he showed me something and you know i make youtube videos and part of the youtube video that opened you he had actually watched one of my videos <laughs> and right. uh, he, he, you know copied the code i looked at it i was like that looks super familiar to me like i'm looking at it and uh and i'm like uh, you know go to this particular part he, he went to it i was scanning it i was scanning it and he turned out he had put, you know, in a for loop, he had put one instead of I. So, oh, yes. So the index was, you know, always, you know, just comparing against one. So basically it was stopping as soon as it hit one. So I've been like zero, one, and then that, that was it. And he was drawing like a couple of polygons. And I was like, that should be I. But that's something easy to, you know, miss, you know, when you're quickly looking over it because I and one on the screen can look really similar and because it wasn't rendering he was going to like the rendering file because uh, it was yeah. uh, because he was also from a model he was looking at the model as well the texture he was like looking at all these things it's literally a matter of changing the character one to the character i fixed the whole thing yep and uh what so i think uh my version of that story is I did image processing for a long time and there was a classic bug 
that would drive people crazy in image processing that, you know, folks that have been around for a while would immediately spot it. And it would be that your image would, you know, you do some processing on your image and it would come, come back and it would look right from a distance. But <laughs> if you like looked at, if you looked at it closely, like the lines would be chopped up and they wouldn't match and stuff like that. And it was, you know, and I watched people like spend days trying sure that there was something wrong with their image enhancement algorithm or something like that. And what it actually is, is that they had gotten the Endian wrong on, on the words so that, you know, each, each sort of eight byte word or whatever in the image was fine, except that individually it was turned around. So it would break up the lines and things like that. And it was typically like, uh, you know, a one line fix somewhere to say, You've got the wrong Endian on your on your on your words there, but I think I think the it's it's you know all of these things are are encapsulated in in the words oh it must be X instead of saying oh I suspect it's X let me go check and prove to myself it's X before I spend a long time fixing X you know yeah exactly you know one of the things I you know, do when there's, you know, like a problem, it, you know, you can use the debugging tool, but I just personally prefer just to start, you know, printing out some, you know, information, you know, obviously if it's, you know, a particular piece of data, stop pin- printing out those variables, the arrays, have, you know, just have a quick look at it and think, okay, does that data look correct? You know, is it what I would expect it to yes. be? Uh, yes. And if it is, then, okay, then the back data is correct. Uh, at some stage after the data, something's gone wrong. And then, you know, slowly start, you know, breaking it down. And like, I'll, I'll further go into it. Like if there's 10 functions being called, I'll literally just put, you know, console logs in each one of them. And I don't put any fancy information. I'll just put like one, two, three, four, all the way to 10. And I'll see, you know, which functions are being called. And I'll like kind of dry run it. And I'll look at it as like, you know, realistically one, two, nine and 10 should be called. But only one, nine, and ten is called. Why isn't two called? You know, or two's only been called yeah. in this scenario, or twice, but the third or fourth time it's not being called. Like, you know, really break it down to the point where you just like, okay, I'm very certain that it is either in this file or you know related to the you know like it's a front end issue, it's a back end issue, it's you know whatever it is. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think of that. I think of what you have just said there exactly as sort of bisecting the world of possibilities. Like something is not working the way I think it should work. So I say, oh, maybe it's X or it's not X. Maybe it's in the server or it's, you know, in the mobile device. Is there some way that I can really like look and see and be sure, oh, the data looks right coming to the mobile device. Therefore, it must be the mobile device or the data looks bad coming out of the server, it's probably the server, right? As yeah. opposed to approaching it by saying, ah, much speed the server. Yeah, really? Um, uh, yeah, like, I see it all the time. I'll be working on a project and like there'll be something wrong and, there, and somebody just quickly, you know, just, you know, jump to, you know, like, like we were just talking about the conclusion of, you know, it's this, you know, I'm going to, you know, fix this file. I'm going to fix this. And like sometimes I'll, you know, go through my approach and I'll, you know, I'll have, People say, you know, you don't need to do that. You know, we've got the data. You know, you know, we know what it is. Right. Like, we don't know what it is. And like, I'll be printing out some of these arrays, and they'll say, okay, you know, I've got the you know information, but what they've got 
is the data that's being received on the server end. It's like I want to know is that being received correctly on the you know the yeah. front end. Like the, those are two very different things, especially if there happens to be processing that also goes on on the server end, which with you know larger, more complex applications, that's pretty much always the case. So there's even more you know potential problems that can arise just from that. So yeah. Seeing what you get it on the server end, great, especially if, let's say, if it's uh, somebody who's on the back-end server team, that that's the exposure they have. They give you the information, but then, you know, you're checking it in your realm as well and seeing, yeah. okay, it's correct. Therefore, there is probably something the mobile side, and then you can, you know, start narrowing it down, you know, from there and to the point where you're like, okay, this is the problem. Yeah, I, I I will say let 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 me back up and and add a caveat, which is that most of the time when there's a bug, we do know where the bug is, right? And we just fix it and we go on with our lives, and yes, it's not a big deal. It's when you get stuck that you need, you know, it's like I have my regular things, and frequently I know where the bug is, and I just fix it, and it's fine. It's like it's when you get stuck, you need to realize, oh, my regular process here is not working. So let me take a breath and start actually gathering data and trying to localize where the problem is, not based on opinions, but based on I have, you know, I've gathered data and this is what the data is telling me because my regular thing is not working. Yes, exactly. You know, it's, it is those more, you know, edge cases where, you know, you spend hours or sometimes days on it and, you know, scratching your head and you end up having, you know, unraveled the whole clock. You're like, you've yes. modified so many different <laughs> files and you're looking at it, you're like, what the hell have I just done? Like, I don't even know what I've changed, what hasn't been changed at this yeah. point. You know, you're, you're... I, I, mean, I was going to say, you know, thankfully nowadays you, you know, IDs are VS code and X code and whatnot. They do track your changes. And, you know, yeah. obviously, you know, with commits and all that stuff, if you are committing on a regular basis, you can revert stuff. It's not that bad. But the the problem is when you start unraveling it so much, you might have changed 20 files, but, you know, 20% of those changes might actually be good changes. You don't want to, you know, yeah. revert all the changes, but you don't you don't specifically know how much of it you really need. Yeah, so that is definitely a big issue. You just start going in and just start breaking the whole thing. So you, you've actually just touched on something that I, I I also think is it's not really it's not different today from back then, but it is uh, something I've learned just from being around. Which is if if I asked you like what are the absolute you know you're coming into a software project with I don't know five or ten people maybe twenty people, um, what would be like the the absolute minimum infrastructure that you would expect in a, you know, a real serious software project. Um, and you just touched on one of them right there, which is some kind of source control system, right? I can do commits and things like that. Um, let me think, what are, what are some of the other? Continuous integration, right? Would you work on a software project with, say, five people without some kind of continuous integration? Mm, I mean, continuous integration, as in you know, constant I, revision of the of the project of the app, for example. Yeah, just just something as straightforward is we have a quick and easy way to build the whole system to see where we are. 
Yeah, I mean, ideally, the, the uh, a pre- uh, that that is what I would want. Uh, obviously, depending yeah. on the system, because uh, obviously, you know, some systems that may not be practical. But you know, ideally, yes, because I, uh, you know, you want to be able to have a quick turnaround between you know you trying something and then you've been able to check it. Right. Um, what are some of the other things? I don't know. Like you, you would probably, you know, even if you are sort of a stick some console logs kind of person in the. In, in your code, you probably would want a debugger, at least have the option of having a debugger, right? I mean, yeah, that's, 100%, yeah, yeah. you know, having yeah. the option there, you know, having it set up. So, you know, if I do want to try it, I'm not, you know, put off by trying it just because it's not set up and the setup might take 30 minutes, you know, the initial setup. So, you know, yeah. you know have it, you know, like to have it, maybe even integrate it somehow with a plugin or directly with, you know, the IDE as well, or let's say the browser or the app you know, the mobile device, for example, and yeah, you know, ha- have it ready so I can, you know, use it. Right. Or you just mentioned it, right? Having an ID available is probably something you might want. Um, okay. I mean, yeah, that's definitely 100%. You know, yeah, there you I'm go. not writing in, obviously, I know people would did back in the day, but in Notepad or, you know, so, so something along those are, are, sometimes I'll come across YouTube videos and they're not that old or they'll be even new ones. And the like the coder on the videos, they'll be writing in Notepad or WordPad, and then copying it over to a compiler, and it's just like, really? <laughs> so, so I, I I have okay. Well, let me let me make the point that I'm driving at, and then we can come back to this. Um, the reason I mention all this stuff, like a debugger and continuous integration, or an easy way to build the system, source control, is that I have been around long enough that I know from personal experience that engineers, including like the majority of engineers on some of the projects that I worked on in the past, hated every single one of those ideas, okay? So I spent a substantial portion of my early career going to, to from project to project saying, look, just having your source code in a random assortment of directories does not work. You need some kind of version control and getting really, really angry blowback for, from that. Or look, having a person whose job it is to build the system because it is so complicated to build the system, we feel like we need to hire a full-time person who will three times a day, run through the manual instructions for how to build this thing is a bad idea. We should automate that, okay? And people hated that idea. Um, and it's like every bit of uh, kind of in- infrastructure and process that we take for granted today to a larger or lesser extent, uh, you know, there was a set of engineers who hated them. Um, you know, I remember the, the source control argument was always that it was too constraining. What do you mean? I have to stop every now and then and essentially save my source code. You know, what if I make a mistake and everyone will be able to see that I made a mistake? Yes, that's the point. Um, you know, and it sounds funny today, but I think it's, it's uh, you know, it is part of who we are as as software engineers or developers is that we tend to be incredibly conservative when it comes to like the fundamental ways that we work and even 
ideas that we just accept as, you know, yes, I would, I either can't live with that without that, or uh, I, you know, it's a good thing that I would like to have. There was a time when people just hated the ideas. Yeah, I mean, with any tech, obviously this is more specifically within coding that we're talking, but any technical innovation, you know, computers, internet, electricity, cars, whatever it is, there's always a lot of blowback. There's always, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's personal, whether it's business, whether it's, you know, they just don't understand the use cases may not be strong enough yet. And I think that, you know, can be a very big one sometimes where, you know, using it, especially setting it up can require a lot of investments time and money and it might be like you know i can just do quicker and cheaper you know just the way it is and again it's it's not a matter of it being an overnight improvement but uh you know a long term it could drastically improve you know the whole workflow and this you know is a good segue into something else that i wanted to you know discuss with you russ and that was you know ai tools like chat gpt because have you looked into ChatGPT and other AI tools at all? I I have. And in fact, um, just the other day, I asked ChatGPT about me. Um, And and, uh, it was sort of a a happy and sad experience. Uh, The happy experience is that ChatGPT, I guess because of the books, actually knew who I was, which was thrilling. Um, the sad thing is that what it knew about me was mostly wrong. <laughs> so, okay, um, <laughs> I, I'm literally putting it into the ChatGPT, you know, app now. To, it says uh, Ruby programming language, eloquent Ruby. Is that one of your books and design yep. patterns in Ruby? Yep. Yeah, and they said uh, involved in speaking at conferences and providing insights into software development practices. Um, that's also true. So far, so good, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's pretty much it, apart from saying you're a software engineer, author, contributions to the development community. And so, that's so, basically it. So I got all that, but then I got a fairly detailed resume, which was like 70% incorrect. And... But I'm okay with it because the resume it cooked up for me was actually much better than my actual resumes. <laughs> you should put that one on LinkedIn said GPT generated. Um, I, you know, I think uh, I think ChatGPT is in the the range of I think it's a I I think technologies like ChatGPT are an obvious real step forward. They are. Yes. You know that we can do a thing that we could not do before, um, but AI technologies have this history of being oversold, mm-hmm. um, and I think Chat GPT—it's a real step forward. But I, I'm really not worried about our robot masters taking over the world or making us—I don't know. You know, and in fact, what I'm more concerned about is not that chat GPT will be so much smarter than I am that, that I will be obsolete as it is that I'm afraid that the world is about to become as dumb as chat GPT, you know, because while it is a step forward, it's not, you know, there's in a very fundamental way, there's not a there there yet, right? Like it fundamentally does not understand what it's talking about. It's kind of telling you what it is calculated you want to hear. That is not nothing. That is a real step forward. 
it's not, you know, at least so far, it's not good enough that it's going to like completely change the world in the way that, you know, you read on the front page of the New York Times or something. No, um, but I would, you know, before we carry on talking about AI and ChatGPT, I would say anything on the front of any major news well, outlet, including the New York Times, is so sensational they should be taken with a pinch of salt. Anyway, <laughs> so so what you're saying what you're saying is that the front page of the New York Times could be written by ChatGPT right now. <laughs> uh, 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 no, least... I mean, uh, I think ChatGPT will probably do a better job. <laughs> I mean, up to 2021, uh, and then after that, yeah. they will need a plugin. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah. So yeah, with ChatGPT, obviously, uh, uh, when when I, I'm going to talk about ChatGPT now, I, I'm generally going to be referring to similar AI tools and the state of sure. AI, you know, yeah. as it is, because I feel like ChatGPT, the term ChatGPT, is becoming synonymous with how AI is. The way Google is synonymous with search, right. YouTube is synonymous. So, with you know, the way, video, for example, yep, the way aspirin is a painkiller, exactly. and I think I think Hoover is a va- general vacuum for you. You know, yes, it, yeah. it is. Even though that's an actual company, it's not. Yeah. you know, yeah. and I, you know, I think I, I think enough people know about that, but we still call it a Hoover. Like, we'll mm-hmm. say, you know, you know, go and grab the Hoover. So, so sometimes we'll say, go and grab the vacuum cleaner. But yeah, we do just say, you know, Hoover, even though I, I have, yeah. you know, heard that before that it is just an actual company. It's like saying, go and grab, you know, the iPhone, but you're talking about an Android. Right, right. Well, aspirin's the, aspirin's the same way. It was a brand name for painkiller. Um, mm. uh, the stuff we call aspirin today. Okay, that's interesting to know. <laughs> but yeah, like people do, you know, you know, just take an aspirin. It's like such, such a generic, you know, term of, you know, just painkiller, even though there's so many different types of, you know, painkillers. But obviously, you know, that's a separate topic for a yep. separate podcast, you know, separate day. <laughs> but yeah, to, to talking about, you know, ChatGPT, obviously, when you hear about it in the news and online, you hear about it, you know, taking over a job, you know, displacing people, you, you know, obviously the more extreme cases saying, you know, you're not going to need coders anymore. And you get a lot of people just standing there, you know, just sitting there. They'll be saying it's going to, you know, reduce the cost of creation to virtually zero. You won't need these people. And I think the reality is it's akin to the average person being able to buy a drill or a screwdriver, it does not make them a handyman. I mean, they'll have the tools and they can buy better tools that will enhance their, you know, construction, you know, their DIY, you know, abilities. But they've, but the thing is, that's the key thing there. They still got to have abilities. It's not going to make them like, you can go and buy bricks. You can go and buy, you know, cement. You can go and buy all the tools. But reality is most people aren't going to be able to build a house physically. It's just one, physically they won't be able to do it. They won't have the skills. Two, they won't have the motivation and the discipline to, you know, get through it as well. And I think that's the same with ChatGPT. It will, you know, enhance, like if you just look at coding, it will enhance a lot of programmers' lives. You know, one way I leverage it on a regular basis is if there's, you know, a generic algorithm that's out there or something you know simple it that i may have written multiple times before but i know it's probably gonna take me you know 10 15 minutes to you know just to whip up and make sure it's working i can just get you know chat gpt to 
you know, generate it for me and me to quickly test it. And then on top of that, I can use ChatGPT to help comment code to a particular, you know, standard like JS doc, for example, or to produce, you know, documentation as well. And then, you know, you can give it a format, you know, that sort of stuff that can enhance and save a lot of time, especially time that coders, for example, do not want to spend. You know, coders don't want to yep, be commenting. Yep. They don't like documenting, all that sort of stuff. ChatGPT can immensely enhance that. And then on top of that, you've got plugins that can link in directly with your IDE as well. So I think that's one way that it can, you know, enhance it. Plus the other thing is, it is, like you said, an inevitability. It's not going to be the way that people are talking about, but it is something that I think you should look into. My recommendation is just go to chat.openai.com. So, the, you know, OpenAI's, you know, chat GPT interface and just start using it. Literally, just start using it as your workflow. It's some stuff that you might Google, just put into chat GPT first, see what happens, have a little conversation. Don't think of going from no chat GPT in your life to it being the thing. But I feel like after three to six months, you might realize that it can immensely enhance you know, your workflow and, you know, what you do, because I use it on a daily basis consistently now. It's, it's, okay. it's that good. Yeah, I, I think, uh, so I think I heard this from my friend Mike Nygaard, who said that uh, ChatGPT is not going to replace programmers, but programmers who know how to use ChatGPT or the other AI technologies are going to replace programmers who don't. And I think that that is a much more likely, I think that's basically what you're saying here. Yeah, 100%. I 100% agree. And it's like what we, or what you said, you know, probably 10, 15 minutes ago, that when some tools like debuggers, IDEs, all this sort of stuff came about, there was a lot of pushback. But yep. the reality is, if you go and get a programming job, and let's say you've got, you know, you're 30 years old, if you have no idea how to use any IDE, how to you know use any debugger, and no desire to use a debugger, and uh, you know all that stuff, then you're probably not going to get very far. There might be some legacy systems where you can really thrive, but the average place is going to be like that's essential as knowing the actual language itself. Like so, I, they I ask, think that's. I think that's an interesting point because you were, you were saying that, that you couldn't live without your IDE. And of course, as sort of a, an old school Unix programmer, um, I rarely use IDEs. They, I just don't find them that helpful. But, uh, and I'm not, I'm not about to you know, go all, oh, you kids have it so easy. <laughs> it is that over decades, I have developed the skills that I think an IDE just supplies to you uh, without a lot of effort, right? So, I, you know, when I look at a code base, I am mentally kind of absorbing where everything is defined. And, uh, I, you know, if I look at a new programming language, I tend to like mentally absorb the syntax and things like that. In, in a very sort of unconscious way so that for me, an IDE is kind of in the way. It's doing something that I can do for myself for, for the most part, not always, but, but uh, for the most part, which is why I tend not to reach for them. 
that does but the problem with that approach is it took me a couple of decades to get there and we probably if if people don't today don't have to go through that then probably they shouldn't you know if you and it it's that kind of th- i think that this is the reason that um you know, when you've got some new bit of technology, the last person you want to ask about it is somebody who looks like me, because maybe I have, like, through great pain and effort, figured a way to get things done without that technology, because it hasn't existed. But it does not mean that for the next person coming along, you know, uh, 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 it might not be helpful. It's sort of like, I'm sure there were people in the early days of the internet who knew where everything were and couldn't understand why you needed that this Google thing because obviously they knew where all the stuff was that they needed to know. Um, I, you know, I, that was not me. Google was like a godsend to me. I could find the stuff I was looking for. Yeah, I mean, I see your point, and I actually hundred percent agree with what you're saying. You know, it is that thing that you spent a couple of decades honing your skills to the point where things are just you know second nature that for someone like me or even younger than me because like i said i'm 31 somebody that's you know 20 years old now didn't it would take them a long time to get to that point where they can just interact you know with you know the code and you know they just know everything that the id is providing for example obviously it can be id whatever it is um you know, without having to use it. But the thing is, they're going against a hundred other people that are willing to leverage those tools. And as a result, employers and, you know, whether you're running your own business, there'll be other businesses that will be leveraging those tools and they'll probably get further ahead than you. So it is a matter of, okay, that's the normal standard now. So therefore, that's what you realistically should do but no I, I i i totally agree and i've seen that a lot of the time with people that are engineers or were engineers and they are older and they've been around in the industry for decades they just approach it in a slightly i mean in a very different way yeah. and as a result but because they know how to approach it they don't really need you know the particular tool because like you said they just know uh, you know, using the Google analogy, they just know where to look. Yeah. Um, and because they've slowly developed the skills as, you know, things were growing, it went from being, you know, let's say, let's just say a size of 10 units, whatever it is, to a thousand. But because you was learning each unit as you went along and you've been able to figure out, okay, I only need these 50 units the other things are can abandon everyone else where there's a thousand things to learn or a thousand you know features or whatever they need something to filter it they need some some of that assistance and i think that's what really does help people is you know coming up that's new is the tools and you'll be you know the similar thing with chat gpt for example and ai tools i think yes newer people getting into the industry will 100 percent not only use it but i think they'll need to use it because they'll be going against people that aren't but i think people that are older than me let's say mid 40s they'll probably be at a point where if they don't leverage it immensely it's probably not going to be that big of a deal compared to someone that's 25 30 35 because they'll be going against and they'll just be like, and plus also they'll be on platforms and systems that will be created with the, that 
in mind the fact that you can leverage chat gpt for example and as a yeah. result if they don't leverage it they'll be at a severe disadvantage well so i i think i think chat gpt and you know related technologies i think they have the potential uh i think they're very rapidly progressing to the point they're they're to the point like um google which is no one needs you know maybe it was true 20 years ago or something, no one needs to know how to use Google anymore. It just works, right? Mm. It just, you type in some stuff and chances are excellent. You will find what you're looking for in the first page or two, right? It just works. Um, uh, you know, Douglas Adams, the, the guy who wrote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books, used to say that technology is what we call the stuff that doesn't actually work very well, right? So I don't know, right now, ChatGPT is technology, but Google really is not. You just type in the thing and it just works, right? We we tend not to think of, I don't know, trains as technology anymore, right? No, but, yeah, they just, you know, they just work. They're, they're not yeah. on time all the time, but right. you know, they do just, you do just expect that you'll go to the train station, you know, the ticket booth will work, the card machine will work, you know, you'll go through the scanning of the ticket or whatever it is, you know, will just work. You'll sit down, like the chairs will, you know, yep. form their function. The doors will open the wind, like all those little things. You just, they're just part of the everyday world. They're like part of the furniture now that you just expect them to work. Right. And, and for the most part. And that is, I mean, I, in my mind, that is the goal of every technology is to stop being technology, right? Like yes. when people stop thinking about it, you've won. And, you know, we don't really think about Google anymore. You just type in the thing and there it is, you know, and I need to find, I, I flew into a different city over the weekend and I didn't know where my hotel was. So what did I do? I just typed it in the Google and that's where I'm going. Um, you know, that kind of thing where you don't really think about it anymore. I think chat and, you know, not all technologies really have that potential. I don't think you're ever going to get a debugger or an IDE that's going to be like that because it's just what it's doing is too specialized, too complicated. Mm -hmm. But something like chat GPT, where you just sort of say, tell me about X and it tells you everything you need to know about X. I think, I think that's a real possibility. Oh yeah. Like that will, and I don't think it's going to be that long. Like you're saying, the the growth rate for tools like ChatGPT is insane. Obviously, they've just announced, you know, Dolly, you know, free, uh, you know, their image generator. I don't think it's accessible publicly yet, I want to say, but the, I know they've announced it and it's looking pretty, you know, good. I think that will can generate text properly on the images as well. I know that's been a problem with previous image AI generators is even if you give it the text to generate, it starts doing some random characters or different language. Like it's never been the best, uh, but it is getting to the point where it can be a bit more useful. But yeah, like the text side of it is becoming a lot more usable for the average person and a lot more practical to the point where, like you said, it won't be technical anymore. And as a result, people won't be scared. Like, because right now, it's technical. And if people know about it, they'll be scared to use it because it's a technical thing. But once it's no longer technical and it's just considered easy to use, 
more people will use it. It's like mobile phones. You get kids, you get the you know technical yeah, exactly. people, yep. you get old people that would never have been able to use a you know a computer or an old phone, and they're just I see I see people and they're just swiping away on their phone, and I'm like the, those people would never have known how to turn a laptop on, right. you know, 15 years ago, and whereas now, and part of that is also marketing as well. It's not just pure technical. Uh, sometimes it can be a lot of it can be marketing but it's got to a point where like you said it's not technology anymore it's like, I, I think that yeah I, i'm trying to think when was the last time i heard a phone in general in you know in general conversation uh you know in with people that it was referred to as technology it's it's like oh yeah it's just a phone and you know it works yeah yeah so the phone is not technology but like an app is technology, right? Like if you need to build an app, yeah, that's technical. But to actually, in the end, that app on that phone, if it's a decent app, right? It's just part of the phone. Oh yeah, 100%. It's uh, yeah. it, it's very interesting how, you know, things do go from being more technical, but then as they become more technical, technically advanced, they become less technically perceived. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it, it is a matter of chat gpt becoming more technically advanced for it to become less you know perceived as less technical yeah it, it it's funny one of my uh one of, one of my colleagues uh at the bank uh ran into a person who you know the bank's available in south america not here in the us but he ran into somebody who was actually a customer of the bank and that person said that he really loved the app, and I'm th- and and it made me realize, you know, we have like hundreds, couple thousand actually engineers who are all working on this huge infrastructure, and you know, there's all of this complicated technological stuff going on behind the scenes to move money around and everything, and what it comes out as for the customer is it's the app, and they love the app. Right. And it's 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 that that like giant funnel of at the at the wide end, there is all this amazing technology. But at the narrow end, right there at the phone, it's just kind of part of my phone. Oh, I really like this aspect of my phone. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I've had that exact experience with a banking application myself. I remember I was talking to my cousin. And we was talking about, you know, the more challenger, you know, the newer challenger banks, the, you know, the ones that usually don't have a physical presence and they're a bit, you know, they're effectively like a technology, you know, a fintech company. And, you know, they're new, the app works really well. And it's just a pleasant experience. It's it's not technical, you know, like you said, it's just a pleasant experience. Like you go on there to do something, you know, it just works. You know, you can get out of the app what you would logically expect to be able to get out of the app in the logical amount of time in the logical amount of steps like there's you have in your head like a rough idea of how you want it to go down you know whatever it is it's like if you're gonna walk a mile you know that's not gonna be one step like you have an idea of like okay you'll be up to this building probably and like you know, with these applications, and it's it's so simple. It's like we were sending money, and I would send it, and straight away it would ping up on my cousin's phone, for example, 
and it would be like this is the way it should be and it's crazy that there are so many other more you know retail banks that it doesn't appear straight away and you're for 30 seconds refreshing the page your account you know you just see if yep. the money's appeared and where you got these other ones it just appears and you get a notification as well because not all of them you know give you a notification you know the more typical big banks and it's like this is just how it should be it's a pleasant non-technical experience but like you said behind the scenes there's definitely a lot of technology going on yeah, it's 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 funny. I think of it since I did spend a lot of my life going to physical banks. I think of like, you know, the ideal online banking thing is, you know, I I open the app on my phone and it's just like going to the bank, except I don't have to go to the bank, right? I can just get money or move money around or whatever, pay my bills or whatever. And you know, of course, at a certain point, we're you know. I guess, long since passed, right? Depending on your age, you've never really spent a lot of time in a physical bank, but you're still getting that experience. It's like doing my thing without having to move away from my phone. Yeah. I mean, I have been to a physical bank, (laughs) I mean, a lot in my life, especially earlier on. And, you know, especially when I used to go like with my mom or my nan, for example, as well. So I've had a lot, either direct or indirect, I've had a lot of exposure, but I 100% agree. If I have the option not to go and do it via the app, I 100% you know, prefer to do that. And I rem- again, not me physically, but I remember people talking about and seeing other people do it, a time where if you wanted to get a mortgage, you had to set up a bank meeting. Like yes. that, that was the only way. You had to be with one of the bank managers, had to be at a specific time. If you didn't have any, all the documentation, you would have to, you know, re, you know, reschedule or, you know, all that sort of stuff. And now, you know, you just ring up or you just email or sometimes these, you know, banks or the mortgage brokers, they have a platform that you can just like message on. And when the other person's available, they'll message you. You're, they'll put on their documents that they request. You can upload documents. You can see documents that the bank's giving, you know, all that stuff. Like there's so much back and forth. It's just so much easier. I remember the first time I discovered that you could scan a check using the mobile app. <laughs> right. And I was like, uh, you know, it's come a long way in terms of, it, you know, being able to work. But I was like, no way. Like, I don't have to go to the bank to deposit this, you know, this check, especially when the check's not that much. And uh, But, yeah. you know, it, 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 like, that's the most annoying one. It's like, when it's not that much, maybe you've had a rebate from something. Um, but, you know, it's just annoying to have to go to the bank spending like 45 minutes out of your day just to go and deposit £10. Uh, but it's just like, uh, you know, it's not free money, but it's my money. Uh, you know, I want to do it. But with, with the app, you just get two pictures, one front, one back, and it just deposits it. And it's like, did that actually work? And when you see it, it's just, it's such an amazing feeling compared to having to go into the branch itself. Yep. Yeah, it's, uh Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, don't I, 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 th- I, I think you've sort of captured the feeling of like feeling the, the world shifting a little bit with, with technology. Like we say, right. It's what we say. We say, you know, like, you know, the world changes with technology, but I always sort of think the world changes when technology just becomes boring and part of the landscape. Yeah. Just easy to use synonymous usually like a particular technology synonymous with the activity itself 
and almost becomes you know you know the you know the verb like it's the techno the technical term like googling it is yep. just it I'll, I'll literally just about to say it again it's just googling it but it's, not, it's searching for it online and you know you just don't really think about it. it's so easy just to you know use it and leverage yeah, it. It, it it's it's interesting that i think so so i've spent a lot of my career um probably because i have a really short attention span but i've spent a lot of my career uh helping uh software teams adopt new technologies right so everything from oh i don't know like in those early days you know source control and continuous integration which just sounds silly now um to uh, lately, I've been uh, kind of advocating for functional programming, and it, it's interesting. The hardest technologies to explain to uh, are are the ones that almost work the best, and I think functional programming is along those lines. And the challenge is that once you really get functional programming. And so once it sort of stops being technology for you, if you will, um, it's it's your your point of view changes, and it's hard for programmers who really understand functional programming to explain it to people who are trying to learn it. And I think that that is uh, a, a a common thing that happens uh, in when we take technological steps forward is that the people who get it, their worldview changes. And it's similar to what if I've never gone into a bank? I have no idea what you're talking about with the checks and things like that. It would be hard for me to explain the uh, advantages of online banking to someone who doesn't get it. If you know, if I'm completely enveloped in it, there's some there's an old saying um, or an old story where someone goes to a goldfish and says, well, tell me about water. And the goldfish says, what's water, right? The goldfish would be the last thing entity to know about water because it's just there all the time. Um, and I think functional programming is is at least the latest version of that With for me in the programming world in that the people who really get it have a really hard time explaining why, because their worldview changes. Oh yeah, and I think that analogy is talking about you know fish and you know the water. You know, I bet you certain you know fish and certain you know creatures in the sea, there, especially the ones that have you know more developed brains and communication systems, they probably have a term or you know a communication method <laughs> for outside of the water you know like above water it's just like you know that's the bad place you know don't right go yes there. because if you go there you know you, I'm, uh, i don't know what they say if you can't breathe but like they'll probably be like you know thinking that if you go there that's that's where it feels like you're gonna die or it, it just doesn't feel pleasant you know obviously i don't know how cognitively advanced they are to be able to process what's happening if they go out of water right but but if, if we live there it feel nice yeah, if if people lived in water, we would have a term for the bad place where there's no water. Yeah, yeah, uh, we, we like, would. Yeah, like the vacuum of space, right? We we have a term for that because it's the bad place where you're 
don't want to go without the proper equipment, you know? No, no. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, a, uh, it's a very strange one. And I, and I love, you know, when you were talking about how the, how a person now that's growing up won't grasp the, you know, the gravity of being able to use your mobile phone for banking. Like imagine trying to tell a kid now or someone that's like 18 now. So they've grown up with the mobile application, you know, with mobile devices, with tablets, with obviously the internet and everything else to that, you know, there was a time where you would get, you know, a check, you would go to the bank, you would have to go between like nine and five but obviously you're at work, so you go at lunchtime, you know, for example, and then you'll be in the, you'll be waiting in the queue because everyone's going at lunchtime. You'll be waiting 30 minutes, and then they would deposit your check, and then it might take three to five days for it to come into your account. And they'll just they'll probably just look at you. Be, there'll be right. people out there that'll think you're joking. Like this can't be as bad as you're making it sound. Well, all all I've got to say to you is I don't know where you live, but the banks here close at three. So. <laughs> oh, I mean it's not that bad, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. I always found that so insane. And then they would have immensely limited hours on the weekend, and it's just like that's the only time that most people have to access it. It's crazy. Yeah, I think I think we're actually talking more about monopolies than banking at this point. You know. Yes, because they know that you need their service. So you're going to make time out of your day. Like, right. I would call, like banking hours, if they had you up to like 7 p.m., that would be so practical. Those extra two hours after 5 p.m. for so many people, you would definitely be rushed at that 5 to 7 p.m. Maybe even open a little later. Like they, they could have, I think that'd be more beneficial. But like you said, because they have a monopoly over that market, now it's kind of changing with some of the challenger banks, but even then that's only to an extent because I know a yeah, lot of yeah. average person will be like, I only want to go with my Barclays or the HSBCs or, you know, whatever's in America, you know, Wells Fargo and whatnot. They only want to go to the names they know. So there's also that issue still. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're an author. You, you know, you've, you know, wrote books. Do you publish them yourselves or do you have a publisher that you work with so i've worked with two different publishers so so yes i have a i have publishers um i work the first couple of books were done with the very traditional publisher addison wesley they make textbooks and things like that and then the third and that was um everything you've ever heard about working with a big publisher um good and bad um but the third book I did with the Pragmatic Press, which uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but it is a publishing company uh, founded by software engineers. And that was a much more pleasant and I think equitable experience, um, which I had thought of it sooner. Um, so yeah, I, I think um, at some point I may try self-publishing books. Um, but uh, uh, one of the things I, I tell people, everyone, I, everyone I've ever worked with at some point or another has, said, has asked me some form of the question, how could you possibly be an author and not be able to spell? Because my spelling tends to be imaginative. Um, <laughs> and, and the answer is, well, if you're an author, you have people who check that kind of stuff. <laughs> Um, yeah, and you uh, hope they check it. They yeah, they, 
well, they're much better at it than I am. So, um, but, uh, so, so self-publishing, you know, obviously I would, uh, have to find someone who could check my spelling and grammar. One, one of my early books, uh, I think I had exhausted the copy editor who is the person who sort of checks for, you know, the grammatical and spelling errors. And I had used a, uh, relatively rare word and in the manuscript she circled the word and said hey this is a real word like she was just she looked at it and so she's like obviously he's misspelled this word because he's misspelled 20,000 other words <laughs> but so yeah that's a, that's the problem it's like that story you know of the boy who cried wolf yes you know, you know that one time your word is actually real but the average person won't have heard of it. They're like, well, he's made so many other mistakes. This clearly, you know, this word that I can barely probably pronounce is clearly incorrect as well. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there you go. Rolling back to the AI, I am sure that copy editing is the kind of thing that uh, AI can, can eventually fix my, uh, you know, obviously I use spell checkers and things like that, but my my bad spelling is much more ingenious than the current crop of bad spell of spelling checkers. So, um, yeah, I, but, I, I but think, I have hopes. Yeah, I, I, I think tools like ChatGPT is definitely going to help there, and I think that's an interesting thing. You know, you've raised ChatGPT for writing is going to be as synonymous, and just and others tasks as well. It's going to be as synonymous as spell checker and grammar checking is with writing now it's like if you said to someone that you wrote this document or this dissertation and that you never spell checked it you know you never used the built-in spell checker or the grammar checker they would look at you like you're crazy it's like it's just obvious that you should do that now Uh, like nobody questions it whereas back you know, I'm sure when those tools first came out, there were probably people saying, you know, writers especially, and obviously the news, that, you know, this is the end of writing. You know, any Tom, Dick and Harry's going to, you know, just be producing, you know, you know, you know, copy now, but it's just going to not be of substance. But we know that's not the case because the act of writing has been enhanced, but the, you know, the process is still a difficult process. Yeah, I. It, it, it's interesting. It's funny you say that because I think um, uh, my, my experience has been that there's lots of people who will tell me, "Gee, I would like to have written a book," and or someday I'm going to write a book. I think the number of people who actually enjoy like writing uh, something as long as a book are pretty few and far between. So I I have friends who've also written technical books who describe it as just an awful experience. Like, you know, how did, how did I ever get myself into this thing? And I, I I actually quite like it. I mean, it's a, you know, it's, to me, it's akin to, to programming where you, you know, you can sort of go off by yourself and think about something really hard and then the hours fly by and, before you know it, it's time for dinner or to go to bed or something like that. Um, but I don't think that's a common thing. I think there's lots of people who uh, either avoid it or or get involved in it and just absolutely hate it. Yeah, I mean, I know what they're talking about. I've published, you know, I wrote and published with a publisher four books. And okay. 
like every time I, I, I say to myself, why did I start it another one? <laughs> like, well, well, why am yeah. I going through this again? And then it gets completed, it gets published, and I'm sitting there thinking, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> I, I don't think the fire, you know, burnt me that much. It didn't hurt that much. I'd do it again. <laughs> like, that's usually, you know, just what, you know, ends up happening. But like you said, like, it is rare that I think someone really enjoys it to the point where they wrote the whole book, that they'll get through writing it as well. First, they'll start. They'll have motivation and the discipline to continue, especially when there's a lot of back and forth from the publisher. And, you know, you're busy with other stuff as well. And, you know, you wrote something, you think it's fine. And the publisher's like, you know, there's this and this and this. And then they keep coming back and, you you know, you're kind of getting annoyed because you're just like, you know, I've already finished this chapter. I'm on the next chapter now. I don't want to you know, have to keep going back. But obviously, you know, that is, you know, the process. Yeah, that uh, it, it, it it is a process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, talking about publishing, what do you think of AI's role within publishing? Because, you know, it, as simple as you know, you know, checking your you know your spelling, your grammar. So you know, ju- you know, just that simple side of it to rewriting text so it's more coherent and it just flows better to the point where AI is writing the whole book because that's something that is a you know a very real possibility. So I think I think. I think yes to everything you said, and I think you said it probably in the order that is going to come, which is smaller scale things like making the sentences flow better or that kind of stuff um, up through, um, uh, you know, maybe just making, you know, helping you organize the topics or, or rewriting paragraphs all the way up to producing books which I think is a little further out there. But I think we are really a long way away from, uh, how can I put this? I'll, I'll put it to you this way. There is nothing in my books that you could not discover on the internet right now, right? I didn't invent any of this stuff. I didn't, you know, the, the closure programming language, for example, is incredibly well-documented. But what my book about closure uh, uh, gives is that I have spent enough time with people who are trying to learn closure that I understand the particular mental difficulties of trying to learn this language, particularly if you're coming from like a Java or JavaScript background and that kind of thing. And I can present the material in such a way that it's not boring to that person and get the ideas across to that person who's got that particular background um, such that, and I'm not even trying to give them all the information. What I'm trying to do is get them to the starting point where they can then go to Google or whatever and figure out the rest on their own. That is a subtle set of requirements that I think, you know, will AI ever get there? I don't know, probably, you know, right? Like how much time you have. Um, but I think that that is a much more difficult and nuanced thing to, to achieve than 
here's all the information about closure for it, for example, or functional programming or, or whatever. So, um, so I think, I think AI will get, you know, will get at least to the point where it can straighten out a bad bit of text and say, oh, this is probably, this probably flows better and that kind of thing. But I will say two, two things are true about the world we live in right now. Thing number one is that the grammar checkers and all of the sort of rule-based, um, you know, the kinds of things that'll help you improve your writing yeah. hate my writing. They just hate it. Like I, you know, I run my writing through these things and I get like 10,000 uh, suggestions, all of which <laughs> sum up to this is bad writing and you should do Rewrite it differently. It. <laughs> yes. Rewrite it again. Um, that, that is, is a thing that is true. The other thing that is true is that people quite like my books and they buy them. So, you know, um, I mean, I'm not the world's most successful author, but people seem to like my books, um, at least the people they're targeted at, which is sort of the only people I care about. So, um, you know, both those things are true. And, you know, if it certainly I read enough stuff enough stuff in business like you know you read memos and documents and rfcs that people put out and i wish the god they would have run them through one of those grammar checkers or mm. you know um but i think at least when i'm trying to write a book i it, it's not really uh it it's a much more social thing than it is uh, a purely intellectual thing, you know, than the product, yeah, than the end product itself, necessarily. Yeah. Um, so, so I don't know. I'm not. I'm not terribly worried. Um, yeah. I, you know, will AI ever get there? Sure, maybe. Um, but I think we're a long way off from an AI that can look at a group of people with a particular background and write something that is appropriate for them and will click with them. That I, that would be cool, right? Because at that point we will have an AI that we're going to have a you know, a, an interesting conversation with, and then wouldn't be anything wrong with that. No. I, I, and I think that's also really interesting because imagine Let's say if you wrote, you know, a book, for example, you know, uh, you know, a book on Ruby programming, but based on the way that I learn and the way that I interact with a particular platform, it knows that your book, the content itself is suitable for me, but the way it's written may not, you know, gel with me as well as a certain other type. And it literally rejigs it or rewrites part of it. So it's tailor made for me. So it's still your book, but it's a bit more tailored dynamically yep. for, you know, the reader. And that could maybe even change as I'm progressing. So, like, it could start off in a more basic way where it's actually holding my hand. And as I'm progressing somehow, so somehow it's tracking it, especially if it's linked with some platform like Code Academy. It's saying, okay, he's picking up pace now. We don't, not just existing concepts, but even new concepts. We don't need to explain it in as much depth. Yeah. We can reduce it to 60% of the explanation and you'll probably get it, but we can increase the explanation if he seems to be falling off the track a bit. So I think that's very interesting. And I think that's 
always been the goal with education for the last hundred years to have tailor made, you know, resources, but it's just too time and costly to do it. But now with computers and AI, that's that's very I mean, Khan Academy and other platforms are already doing that to an extent, even pre this new AI wave. But with the yeah. AI itself, it's on the fly, it could potentially be happening or so, on a conversational basis. I, I, I think there's a categoric error um, that people make uh, with lots of new technologies. And particularly, I think it's happening with, with AI, which is, you know, there's, there's two things you can do with a new technology, uh, obviously. A new technology can do the same thing that a person can do but better, right? So I don't know, you know, like uh, I suppose, you know, like the classic example is like weavers, right? You know, you could hand weave a thing or you could have a weaving machine that could spew out the cloth. And obviously the, the, the weaving machine can make more cloth, better quality, faster than a human being could, could be. So that is, you know, weaving machine is kind of like a person only better. But there's another thing that technology can do, which is it can do something that people utterly can't do. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but we have airplanes, but people can't actually fly by themselves, right? So an airplane is, uh, you know, gives us the ability to do something that we could never do before, right? Like got x-ray machines that can see through walls, right? People cannot see through walls. Um, and I think the, you know, whenever a new technology comes along, there's always this focus on, oh, it's going to replace people because it's going to be a better person. But frequently, the more interesting versions of uh, technology, the more interesting applications are doing something that people are completely unable to do, you know. Um, and I don't know what that is for, for AI, but I really can't wait. Oh, yeah, it's... it. it... I think you put it, you know, nicely. It's it's just already being a AI will just do what people can already do, but slightly better. And then obviously, if you combine both, you know, people yep. that understand what you're trying to do, uh, you know, and what needs to be done, and have technical skills, but then also understand how to use the AI, how to leverage it, and then they can marry both. That's the uh, and you know it's it's what we said you know earlier. Somebody now who knows how to use an IDE is more employable uh, on average and will do better, yeah. I'd say, than somebody that doesn't. That's not talking about like you said, somebody older like you that's been in the industry for decades. That's totally different. But somebody that's 20, 25, 30, Yes, like these new tools, it could be anything. Well, obviously, right. AI is the one uh, that we're discussing right now. But, um, you know, talking about books, I want to make a little, you know, yeah. prediction. And my, uh, did you see in the news a few weeks ago that Amazon has limited publishing books on their KDP platform to free books due to the fear of, you know, AI books over take you know like being published heavily plus also they have a little checkbox now to say is any part of this book ai put you know create you know generated mm-hmm. I, so i saw something about that yeah yeah so uh well so what they say with that checkbox is that right now they're just using that for data gathering purposes research purposes but my prediction is 
within we're into l- beginning late 2023 now i say by within one to three years and that's pretty wide t- time frame but obviously you know with a big company sometimes it takes a while for them to fully adopt stuff i think they will have their own range of ai generated books that will undercut the current market you know books the same way they had products on their website which they still do but then when they once they got data and they started setting up manufacturing and logistics they started doing amazon basics which apparently you know seemed to be higher in the rankings uh, you yeah. know obviously i know they've denied any you know <laughs> you know favoritism there but we all know how things work with business uh, and i think there'll be an amazon basics or something similar set of AI generated books instead of paying 30 40 50 pound for a textbook you could pay five pound five dollars and it would they will be upfront that it is AI generated it may not be the same quality level as you know something that let's say you wrote but it is a lot cheaper or they might even have a subscription model where you can subscribe like how you can do so you know a Kindle subscription right. and access a shit ton of you know ai generated books and content and there'll be more added on a regular basis yeah it's interesting you mentioned textbooks because i think that goes right to the um the idea that uh you know chat gpt for example made up a resume for me that that wasn't really correct as much as it was pleasing to me um (laughs) but uh I and think it's you like, don't use it. Uh, uh, on April Fool's Day, you should change it. <laughs> you just get 24 hours. <laughs> a link uh, it, I, you know, a textbook, you know, like in, in the in university, right? You buy textbooks and they're wildly expensive. Oh, yeah. Uh, and probably pretty badly written. But what you're really and buying. And out of date as well, a lot of the time. Yeah. But what you're really buying is like, this is the authoritative statement by an by a person that, you know, people respect on astrophysics or whatever it is. And, you know, that is exactly what you're not getting from the current crop of AI. And I say the current crop, right, could change tomorrow. But the 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 whole indictment of the current state of AI today in 2023 is that a lot of it is baloney. You know, yes, um, it and, is. and, uh, uh, I, I certainly, so your, your scenario where you could, for example, buy a textbook and it's much cheaper because it's AI generated, that would be lovely. Cause I think it's terrible that textbooks are so expensive and, and that kind of thing. But on the other hand, boy, we really, really would need to know that, that, uh, AI has gotten better at talking about astrophysics before uh, we let we rely on AI generated astrophysics textbooks, for example. Uh, oh yeah, forget uh, forget astrophysics. How about a dentistry textbook, an AI generated dentistry textbook? Would you go to that dentist? Right. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, you know, so true. But you know, it's it goes back to what we were saying that it's gonna be the marriage between the human and the AI. Cause you know, this is the, this is the question, you know, Russ, is it quicker to read a book on average or is it quicker to write a book? We know the answer quicker to read (laughs) a book. So if 
the let's say the AI generated it in 30 minutes and it was you know it's done it's some basic checks are done on it seems good and then it's handed over to a professional to go through they go through it and they're like okay there are these five points which are just totally incorrect they need to be rewritten or i'll even rewrite them yeah, and there are these yeah. 10 points that can just generally be improved they're not quite there they're overall but the rest of it's fine that is like a winning combo like that yeah, right I- there uh, instead of having to sit there. And I think that will open up the possibility of getting people to, um, you know, part write a book that they yeah. that never would have done it because of the laborious process of writing a book. But now they have to just read a book and just verify it. And, make, you know, there might have three yeah. independent people doing it, along with some, you know, computer technology as well to make sure, you know, one person didn't miss it or any biases weren't, you know, you know, present. But I think that's going to be a solid combination. All right. I think, I think, I think I'm on board. Uh, should we form the company next week or wait um, until next year? Mm, I think we should end the podcast <laughs> now and we should <laughs> form it now. Let's call, actually, what, what would you name if, if hypothetically, if you was to create an AI generative <laughs> company, what would you name it? Oh my goodness. Now you're asking hard questions. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you can even what go would... down the route of making it a super technical name, which probably isn't long-term good, or a, a more simple name that will probably be better so, marketing-wise long-term. So I, I, I've worked in the closure world, C-L-O-J-U-R-E, for a long time. And uh, I've always said that in the that the best name for anything in a closure world, like a project name or whatever, the ideal name is one that I can hear and have no idea how to spell and and write out and have no idea how to pronounce. Um, and closure is full. The closure world is full of those kind of names. So you're asking completely the wrong person to name something. Yeah, I, I mean, it would you know would definitely be interesting. But yeah, I, I think AI is definitely going to be you know very very interesting. Uh, I mean, in your you know current day to day job, are you seeing any you know talks or discussions within your company of leveraging these tools or looking into them, or is it still a matter of it's a thing, it's happening, but we're not looking into it yet? So I don't want to talk to to my company, but just in general, everyone is talking about this. You know, and it, it we, we get on this podcast, and I'm going to talk about programming in the last thirty years or something, and the fact that AI comes up does not surprise me at all. Like the whole world is talking about this and trying to get their arms around it. Um, and again, I and and. From my point of view, there's a lot of irrational exuberance and also unjustified pessimism, right? Like the the, the truth is usually somewhere in the middle um, there, and the trick is to figure out where 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 the truthful middle lies. But uh, yeah, I think I, you know, it's going to be an important thing simply because ChatGPT, as it stands right here in October of 2023, is a step forward. And anybody who denies that is not actually looking. Um, But to say that where we are right now uh, is sort of, uh, you know, 
uh, that the world has like fundamentally changed right now, I think is also a mistake. I think the potential is there for huge changes. We're just not quite there yet. And I, I, you know, we're watching it play out in real time. Oh yeah. 100%. I, you know, you know, before we move on from AI, you know, what I find interesting about what chat GPT is doing and like the areas of interest right now, they're not the area that you would have commonly thought about AI or what people thought it was going to, it was always that thing. It's going to take over the manual jobs, you know, you know, driving a vehicle, you know, stacking shelves or, you know, whatever it is. It, It, a lot of the right now it's, it's going not after, but it's really targeting, you know, the technical, you know, aspects, basically the thing that's not physical, and is, you know, intellectual, it's really, you know, geared up for that right now. And I think that's something that I don't think people would have predicted five to 10 years ago, if you spoke about AI and, you know, were, you know, the best or worst case, however you look at it, scenario for the impact on the economy, a lot of the time they would have gone after those other type of jobs, driving a lorry, you know, stacking shelves, uh, you know, delivering parcels, that sort of stuff. And though obviously AI is benefiting that, it's benefiting it on the technical side, not on the manual side of things as much. Yeah, I don't don't know. I think, uh, so I don't know the answer to this, but the question is that as it gets, so that, you know, the penalty for a self-driving car making a mistake is very high and very immediate. Yes. Right? Like if you've got a self-driving car that does something bad, everybody's going to know about it and, and perhaps, you know, people will be injured. Um, where uh, it's a just less obvious, like, I don't know, if you had an AI lawyer, uh, certainly if it makes a mistake, it could do some horrific damage, but it's not going to be as obvious and, and hit the front page as much. But, you know, the AI is going to get better, and I suspect it's going to get better at lawyering or something else intellectual about at the same rate it's getting better at driving a car. Like, that, that is the, the thing that we've made the step forward with, is there's some kind of forward progress in sort of general intelligence. We're not there yet, but it seems like we've taken a step in that direction. Um, and so I just, you know, I don't know if this will happen, but I can imagine a world where suddenly it's good enough that it can drive a car reliably um, without people freaking out and also do things like, you know, the basic clerk work in a lawyer's office or something like that. And we would all have faith in it. Oh, yeah, it is an, an inevitability. So, you know, what advice would you give to someone, you know, from your last four decades of being in the industry, you know, having worked for multiple organizations, done loads of thing, things from conferences, panels, talks, this podcast, you know, writing books, being a programmer in the early days, all that sort of stuff. What advice would you give to someone, especially someone that's looking to become a programmer right now? Um, well, let's see. Um, well, one thing is that I think I think people don't realize, particularly people coming out of the university, like if that's the path you're taking, 
Um, uh, people come out thinking that there's like, you know, five or 10 job categories and, and that's it. But in fact, when you get into the industry, right, there is like a million different jobs. Every single job for every company is a little different. And you really need, I think the most successful people, certainly it's been true for me. And I think it's been true for the people around me who've been happy in their careers. They, they, they make the decision this way. What are the things that I enjoy doing that make me happy? And then let me find a job doing that. Right. Obviously when you're first starting out, that's harder. You're just kind of looking for a job. Right. But, um, you know, at a certain point, as you gain experience, you can actually drive your career in the sense that you can drive a car. You can learn about the things you're interested in and learn about, you know, and dig into the things that you feel like you're better at and the things that make you happy and sort of push your career in the directions that will make you happy. Um, and I think, I think, People starting out, they tend to talk a lot about the job market or what's the job market for this and what's the job market for Java programmers or whatever. You don't work for the job market. You just need one job, right? The job market is like 10 million jobs and nine and a half million developers or something. You just need one job. Um, So there tends to be, you know... It's not like you can pursue your dreams and there will always be a job there. But if you if you intelligently steer your career towards the things that you actually like doing, you are a lot more likely to end up doing things that that you want to do. If you if you don't know where you're going, you are unlikely to get there. Um, yeah, I mean, I hundred percent agree. And then. I think I think the absolute key thing, and I did not realize this for a long, long, long time, um, is that if you were an engineer or really any other professional, you have this little business. You are selling your services to other businesses, probably bigger businesses. So uh, at a certain point, I started thinking of myself as like Russ Incorporated, you know, And the businesses that you are selling your services to, they could be full of nice people, and most of them are, and they could mean the best in the world, and most of them do, but businesses are not teams, they're not families, they're not your home, they are profit-making enterprises, and the same thing is true of you, that you are, that your job is is fundamentally a business relationship. And um, the thing that sort of makes me crazy about modern corporate culture is when companies start talking about business, about teams and family and home and we're all in this together. Workplace. And it's just like, yeah, I mean, the, they do, you know, you know, and, and the thing is they're in it together whilst things are good. But if it's, you know, I think it's a good thing, you know, that you've raised because as soon as it benefits them to get rid of you, you and I would say, depending on the person who's doing it, regardless with whatever excuse they need to, they will. And yes, and a lot of people, unfortunately, they do get sucked into having a good manager most of the time, or the environment's good, or the colleagues are good, or they enjoy the work, and they 
that they feel like they owe the company something. Again, it's not about screwing the company over, but one, being open to new opportunities, but two, you know, also on the flip side, not taking things too personally when things right. are, you know, maybe said by the manager, you know, to you, you know, sometimes it's not really about you. It's just about whatever's going on in your manager's, you know, career and life right now. Um, but also, you know, like, you know, f- find, you know, so like be willing to do what's best for you. Like so many times I hear people say, you know, you know, I can't do that. I can't switch or, you know, uh, you know, I need to make sure this gets done because, you know, the company's good to me or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And it's like to an extent, but they will get rid of you when that opportunity arises that it is better to, to not have you there. And that's not a comment on your ability. That's just a comment on their situation and what their perceived, you know, the perceived nature is of that situation. It, it is a, it's exactly what you're saying. It is a business relationship between two businesses and, um, you know, the one business, the employer as you say, and, and you know, the minute it becomes undesirable for them to keep you around, you will no longer be around. And the, but the flip side of that, I, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's the way the world works. The, the, the thing that individuals have to keep in mind is that the same thing is true for them that they should always be thinking about the next thing or the other thing that I might be doing. Um, and that's, you know, difficult and painful sometimes, but if, you know, it needs to be a symmetrical relationship, right? The companies certainly understand they are employing you because it is to their advantage to employ you. And you need to make that symmetrical. I'm working for a company because it is to my advantage to work for this company. And that's great. Everybody understands the rules. Everyone understands what the situation is. And it's a happy, productive relationship. The the thing that makes me a little crazy sometimes is when companies start talking about families or home or teams and things like that. And it's like, that is a PR effort to obscure what is fundamentally you know, a fine business relationship. It's the, it's trying to obscure the facts in the world. And uh, the best employees are the people who have an absolutely clear idea of where they stand with their company. Oh yeah. And within their life, their relationships, their, you know, their age, you know, all that stuff, like, you know, hundred percent understanding that and knowing when, you're no longer suitable for that company. You know, whether, you know, it's just you need to move on. Like you've advanced and yep. the company's not advancing you enough or you want something different. You've got the skills or the experience to do something different. And yeah, it's it, that's something that I have, you know, I have discussions with people and I, like most people, they just do not, you know, understand that. I find a lot of people, they just bury their head in the sand and they do not want to hear it. They do not want to believe that or like companies can be this cold or that people within the companies can be this cold. And it's like, it is just unfortunately that way. And it's only unfortunate because you don't realize it and then take the necessary steps 
to, you know, factor that in. It's like if you just talk about it from a mere, you know, pure money perspective, if you lost a hundred dollars, you wouldn't be you wouldn't care if you had ten million dollars. You care when you have ten dollars uh, you know you, you you care when you have a hundred dollars and you lose a hundred. It's because you put all your eggs in that basket. You right. have not created savings, you investments, or you know, you haven't got a backup. Whereas if let's say, you know, you're in a job and maybe it's just the industry as a whole. If you're constantly learning and at the side, you know, over years, you're developing your skills and you're like, you know, when the time's right or when I'm no longer, you know, you know, I can no longer be at this company or in the industry, I'll just switch. When you're in that position, it, it becomes less emotional and it's like, okay, I need to switch now. It is what it is. Yep. Um, and I, I, I will say that, you know, most, maybe all of my best friends at this point in my life are people that I've worked with and people can be loyal. And I am certainly loyal to my friends and I am lucky that I am, you know, I have a circle of friends who are just an important point of my life and that I love and cherish. And most of those people I met working, you can be loyal and care about people Less so about companies. Companies are businesses. They they run by a set of rules. And again, none of this is bad. You just need to to have have your eyes open and understand the relationships. You know. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. And it it is that thing of realizing the situation, and that's where people really go wrong. They don't understand the real you know relationship, the real dynamic, and it is a big PR campaign by companies, by industries where, like you said, they use these terms like, you know, you're a family. We're going to be open and honest. We're going to be candid. You know, you know, when you hear these, you know, CEOs, talk, you know, say these terms and everyone's just believing what they're saying. And when they start saying stuff like, you know, we don't care about money, but yet they always trying to beat their previous quarter, beat their previous year. And it's like, like, to an extent, yeah. you do like to an extent that there are things, uh, and again, it's it is just a thing that we've just been hammering down that they're gonna care about those things, but they just don't admit they do because it's kind of you know perceived as yeah. bad, and you know you know they make you feel comfortable, and they and that's what they want. But as soon as it's the opportunity arises, you are you know gone but it it, it, it's something you have to realize as an individual yeah every time uh i hear some company going on about how they're a family or something i there there's a famous line in american politics where some politician said every time you say that i want to reach down and make sure my wallet is still there um and that is that is kind of how I feel about about statements about you know being one big happy family, and it you know I'm not talking about a particular company. I am talking about companies in general and employers in general. This idea that they try and obscure what are the the realities of life that everyone understands. And again, there's nothing bad about this. It's just it is, and you are much better off recognizing the reality. Um, than than not. Yeah, uh, and I think, 
And I think this speaks to a broader problem we have as humans in, you know, when you look at politics, when you look at, you know, war, when you look at, you know, whatever the economy or whatever it is, people, they just don't want to see what's in front of them and what isn't that hard to see. They, because in the moment it benefits them to be ignorant, uh, it, it it is easier to be ignorant. You know that term. You know that saying, "Ignorance is bliss." Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. It, it, it's like obviously you. I mean, you've got to kind of have a balance because you can't always be. You know, you know, you know. Let's say if you work in a company, you can't spend five years working there and thinking your manager's out to get you, thinking that they're you know they don't care about you. Like obviously, you understand that's the case but you can't have that thought always in your mind every single second right, of every right. single day like you've got to get that balance otherwise you're just destroying you know yourself and like you've got it it's like if you know the, the difference between you saying there's no suffering going on in africa and there's no starving people no people you know with that war like everyone's fine versus every moment of every single day yeah you worrying about it because you've seen an advert or an article, but there's nothing that you can actually do about it necessarily. Like it's it's kind of different if that's you know you're within some sort of you know relief effort and that's what you're actually working on. But if you if you're not even working on that, and like you got to get a balance of knowing it, thinking about it, but then you know moving on as well. Yeah, I as a manager. Um... You know, the easiest people for me to manage are the people who understand basic things like, you know, gee, I'm an employee of this company and, uh, you know, I'm trying to be decent to the people around me and I hope my manager is decent to me because that's just, you know, a better way to, to be a human being. But fundamentally, I'm working hard because I'm trying to make the company successful why am I trying to make the company successful? Because if they're not successful, they might fire me, yeah. you know? And, and it's, again, it's like a completely unemotional acceptance of reality, you know? And those are absolutely the easiest people to manage because it, it tends to be a little less emotional. Gee, I need you to work on this project that maybe you're not that excited about. The person can make up their mind. Do I want to work on this project or is it so bad for me that I need to do something else? If you need to do something else, that's okay too. I'm, you know, I, I'm sorry we won't be working together anymore, but it, it's okay. It's just a better way to operate than the idea that somehow we're a family and you're going to leave the family or, you know, it, it's, a, it's a different dimension of life than family and teams and all the rest of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's, uh, you know, like how you say, there's the, there's the difference between being honest of the real situation and kind of basically trying to deceive your employees using perks, you know, and, you know, just certain words uh, to persuade them to do the work, you know, like, you know, it, you know, you can have unlimited food, you can have, you know, these nap pods and all these other things and all these other, you know, company benefits that basically just, let's say, you know, let's say in Silicon Valley, just keep you in the office after hours. It's like, oh, free food, I'll save some money, you know, all, you know, all this sort of yeah. stuff. And, you know, Wi-Fi on the, you know, the company bus that picks you up from your house. So I don't, you know, save money on, 
you know, travel, but then obviously I'm with, you know, colleagues. So I'm probably going to, you know, talk about work because there's, you know, free Wi-Fi. You know, I'm pro- obviously now with, you know, 3G, 4G and 5G, it's I say less of an issue, but it's still to have like good consistent connection and there's a charging outlets, all that stuff. Instead of being honest and saying, you know, obviously the more you put into this, the more you'll get out. And part of that is, pay rises, bonuses, you know, positions in the company that you otherwise won't be able to. And part of it is still being able to stay versus not being able to stay. You know, I think you may turn away or like certain people will turn away because they don't like to hear the reality. But I think you'll get, like you said, people that are very loyal in a different way because they'll understand the situation. And they'll, you know, you're having a proper, honest conversation with them. And, you know, the example that you're saying of there's a new project coming on. And if not directly to them, but if you just say in general to your employees that obviously the more projects that you're taking on or the more you're willing to take on this, you know, project that you may not be comfortable with, the more it's likely going to benefit you in your bonus, in your success at this company. And it's kind of an unsaid thing in most companies, but that is the reality. Yeah, and and again, I think I think that if from the employee's point of view, if they're looking at it as, oh yeah, the you know the benefits outweigh the rewards, and this is in in the in the mean better for me. Great, do it. But you'll do it. You know, maybe it's a project you're going to hate, but you'll do it a little more cheerfully. Because you've kind of weighed the pluses and minuses and said, eh, it's not a great project, but you know, it's it's all worth it in the end. Or, hey, it's not a great project and I've got a better opportunity. I'll see you. Um, th- that's a much better way of dealing with things than, um, you know, I think it's, you know, simply getting pissed off that you're assigned to a bad project, right? Uh, uh, you know, work is full of frustrations and things like that, but no one's holding a gun to your head. And I think, uh, you know, there's the economic realities of whether you can actually change jobs and, and all that kind of stuff, but uh, you shouldn't create artificial boundaries like, oh, I have to stay at this company because we're a family. No, no, actually you're not, you know? Yeah. And if you have real friends at the company, you know, I, I have lunch regularly with someone I worked worked with in the 1990s, right? Your your actual friends are sort of the definition is they keep you around even when you're not working together. I guess is one definition of a real friend. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's probably one of the best definitions of a real friend. You know, when they don't have to, they they choose to see you when they don't have to see you. They yeah. have to see you in the office or on, you know, teams or whatever. Like they have to do that interaction then. But if they're like they text you say, you know, I'm free this weekend. I've got a couple of hours. Would you like to hang out? Obviously if you're living in a different countries that's that's different. But if you're like half an hour away, if you you know you you know you want to grab a bite to eat, you want to do this, you want to do that, that's like I said, the more definition of a real friend. And, you know, you can just see that. And also, even when you're at the company, you can see, are you hanging out with this person on a regular basis outside of work? If you're not, you're probably not that, you right, know, right. much you know, strong friends with them. They're work friends, and you may not mind hanging out with them. <laughs> like, you might not mind their company, but if you're not actively trying to hang out with them, or they're not actively trying to hang out with you, 
outside of that work environment, then how much of a real friend are they? And that's not to say they're bad. That's just to say they don't have a significant part in your life and vice versa. Yes. And so, so um, I, I guess the sum of my advice is to like find the things that make you happy and try and steer your career that way. And just keep in mind that, you know, it's a business relationship when you're working for a company and in the end, you are trying to run the, the me incorporated business and you need to steer that business in the way that is best for the one and only stockholder of that business, which is you, you know, um, (laughs) to to beat the analogy into the ground there. Oh, yeah. So before we wrap up today's podcast, Russ, what I always do is ask a bunch of rapid fire fun questions. Are you okay. ready for them? I guess I am. Okay. So if you was to run your own company, would you run? Would you rather run a 10-person company or a 1,000-person company and why? Oh, a 10-person company, hands down. A 10-person company, you can get to know all the people you can, you know, figure out, I th- well, let me back up. There is a world of difference between a company where you know everyone and can operate that way and a company where you need to hire people who hire people who know, every- who know their little, little slot of, of the company. And to back up a little bit, I, I am a firm believer in I'm as smart as I am. You are as smart as you are. If we get together, we're almost twice as smart as we would be individually. If you get three people together, uh, it's more like two and a half. Four people, it's more like 3.1. And somewhere around seven or eight, it starts going negative, right? Large groups of people will do stupid things that no single individual will ever do. And I'd rather not fight that. I'd rather have a 10-person company. Oh, yeah. Plus, also, the 10-person company is more likely to be a family than that 1,000-person company, if you want to talk about it from that perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it will be friendlier, maybe, you know, has the potential, yeah. Yeah, to an extent. Obviously, at 10-person, chances are they're probably not all co-founders, so there's people that are hired. When it's all co-founders, you can, to an extent, kind of create a family environment when they've you know the like they're all directors and they're all got a similar share yeah. at that point it does become and partly just because it's harder to get rid of each other the other thing is that with a 10-person company i could like i could look each of the other nine people in the eye and say you know this is a business and we are here to you know operate the business and if you decide to leave that's okay, but you know it's it's not going to hurt my feelings. <laughs> so going back to the previous thing. Oh yeah. So next question: Would you rather have five million dollars upfront or half a million a year for the rest of your life, and why? Um. Well, I'm pretty old. <laughs> so uh, I. That's a great question. Um. I think I'm going to last 10 years and maybe longer. I'd take the half a million dollars a year and I I don't have any deep reason for it except that uh, probably in five years I could think about, I could think of something better to do with the money than if I had it all up front. Fair enough. Favorite board game, favorite video game, and favorite movie? 
Um, start with the last one first. My favorite movie is um, it's probably actually Deepwater Horizon is my favorite movie. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's about it's it's actually based on a true story, but it's about a disastrous explosion and fire on a oil well out like an ocean oil well out in the Gulf of Mexico. And I love it because it, it focuses on like the regular sort of people working on, on this oil well and, you know, sort of how mostly they just dealt with this catastrophe with, uh, 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 courage and grace. And I think, we don't have enough films um, about sort of ordinary people dealing with with stuff. There is, it's, it tends to be, you know, if you think of all the popular movies, they're either about superheroes or these, you know, great people. And I think, I think the real greatness is just sort of in the the sort of average person who tries to get along in their life. Um, my favorite video game, I haven't really, uh, I've sort of fallen out of the habit of playing, I, probably Kerbal Space Program. I quite like Kerbal Space Program, very, very low key and, uh, you know, uh, sort of undirected. And my favorite board game is, I hate board games with a passion. I am the, <laughs> I am the, the only living programmer on earth who hates board games. So, uh, but I do hate them a lot. Okay. I mean, why is that? Like the difference between, uh, you just don't play them. You're not that into them, but to like, like that hatred sounds strong. Uh, Yeah. Well, you know, I, I have played board games, but it is like not the first thing I would do. And it's probably not the 85th thing that I would do. And I don't, so the deep psychological um, reason is probably because I'm the youngest child, and so I always lost the board games. Um, but what I tell myself is that board games exercise exactly the same part of my mind that programming does, and I get so much more out of programming than moving the little thingy around the board. Um it's funny, uh, many years ago, a friend of mine actually created a board game. It was a board game based on NASCAR racing, which we have in the U.S., and he needed someone to edit the very thick instruction book that came with this board game. So he found me, and he talked me into editing his uh, instruction book, and his reasoning was that if I could get through the instruction book, hating board games, then it would be a good instruction booklet. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> so, I mean, the next question I usually ask is what video game are you looking forward to the most? Uh, and what movie are you looking forward to the most? Ah, um, so video game, I haven't really, yeah, as I say, um, I still haven't seen Oppenheimer, so that is the movie that I'm I'm looking forward to the most right now. I'm sort of behind the times here, but that's the one I'm looking forward to. Okay, I mean, it was a good movie. I watched that when it, you know, came out. Yeah. I mean, Nolan movies always are. <laughs> yeah, 
Did you see Barbie at the same time? That's the uh, no, not the same time. I watched it. I think like two, three days earlier. So okay. I, I it seemed like I wasn't one of those ones that did the you know the Bar Barbenheimer or whatever. You know, they like going from one you know into the other. I haven't done more than one movie on a single day since I think twenty twenty. I would say before I got married. Uh, I don't think I've done it after <laughs> you know marriage. Partly, I don't think my wife would want to do that much in terms of movie outside other than one but also when we go out like for a movie for example there's usually other things we end up doing as well so like either food or maybe some other activity or with like if we're near somewhere you know like ikea or costco so you know we, you know we'll do that as well so a movie doesn't end up just being the two hours Plus the travel to and there, there's other stuff that gets yeah. big. And when you have kids, it's like, <laughs> like so they're trying to watch two, three movies at cinema becomes difficult. I'm familiar. Yeah. <laughs> so last question, it's a two-parter. Does money buy you happiness and what does a good life mean to you? Uh, money does not buy you happiness, but... Uh... It can ease the way, right? Like the only people who who don't really care about money are people who have enough of it. Um, so uh, can't buy you happiness, but uh, it can certainly uh, you know clear clear the uh, the road a bit. Um, and what's a good life? I don't know. Uh, couldn't we have started with that question? That seems like <laughs> a big question. Uh, good life. I don't know. Uh, I think spending your time doing things that you enjoy doing and having a circle of people around who, you know, like you and, and you like them and that sort of thing. So I think, cause you know, what are we, we're the, the we're the things that, that we spend our time doing and we're the people around us. Um, so, so for me, it's like getting those two things right. Uh, is the secret to a good life fantastic so i just want to thank you ross for you know coming on to fire dev today it's been you know an honor you know talking to you and a great experience as well well thank you for for having me it's been really my pleasure and finally thank you for everyone listening uh stay tuned for next week's episode of fire dev and have a good night bye bye